Heavenly Father, more and more in these days, we appreciate what that means. Not only for the things that happen to us personally, but as we see the um, world around us uh, going through such upheavals, we realize that our hope does not lie in anything other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for all you do for us and for sending him. And it's in his name we thank you. Amen. Well, there's a uh, story of a dad. He had been sick, and it just happened to be right around uh, Father's Day that uh, he was there, and he had gotten out of the hospital, and he was in his room and everything. And um, uh, his wife came in, and he said, he said, is everybody in the room here right now? And he couldn't see very well. And she said, honey, everybody's in the room. And he says, is, is everybody in the room right now? And one of the sons said, Dad, yeah, we're in the room right now. And he sat up in the bed and he says, then why is the TV on? That was supposed to be a joke. Years ago, we used to turn the TV off. Nowadays, apparently, we let it keep going. Moving right along. You know, it's kind of interesting. When I was in Germany, uh, you know how it's kind of traditional sometimes on Mother's Day, you give the ladies a rose. And on, what do you do for dads? So in Germany, it was perfect. There was a square candy bar called a Sportritter. And sport means sport. And what guy isn't into sport of some kind, if not doing it, watching it? And Ritter means knight. You know, like on a horse, you know, one of those guys. And this was the perfect gift. And so coming to the States, one of the, the tragedies was these things are so expensive over here. So to be on the cheap, we had to go out and get Slim Jims. Well, Slim Jims are okay. The thing is, if you hadn't have, had a Slim Jim in a while, when, once you get done with your Slim Jim, you have to get involved in the Rolaid Relay. Running back and forth, taking care of that. But we dads will survive. So, dads, today, unfortunately, um, the applications are for you. I'm going to kind of get the ladies off the hook, and I'll be looking at the guys when I'm doing this. So, we are in... Uh, Daniel chapter 11, if you have a Bible, uh, you can meander there, and we'll be looking at what this is. This is some of the most unique writing in the world, actually. Uh, the scripture here is not only prophecy, but it's written in such a way that God is doing something he doesn't do any other place in the Bible. Even though we have some things that kind of look like this in the book of Revelation, what we have right here is absolutely unique. This was going to get the Israelites, get the people of Israel, through 400 years of silence. At the end of Malachi, God stop speaking to his people. However, this information is all for that 400 years. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And I'm, I, it's going to break down into three sections. I don't know how far we'll get, but the three sections are this. The, the world in chaos, and then a small example of an ultimate villain for Israel. Uh, so the, anti, uh, the Antichrist. We call him in here Antiochus Epiphanes, but he is just a type. But during that part, the people need to respond in a certain way. And then that opens up for the last guy, 
who is actually talked about here, who is the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. We'll see if we get that far, I doubt it. But anyway, we'll be talking about what is happening here. So, in chapter 11, just jumping into it, the world in chaos, in verse 2, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. When he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Now, this king that it's talking about right here, with this great amount of money and everything, far richer than all of them, uh, this is the husband of Esther. So this is um, um, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. or uh, So we meet him, actually. And remember at the beginning of the book of Esther, he's holding this massive party. And what he is actually doing is he's bringing in all the clans of the Persians so that they will go and fight against the Greeks. He is hoping to catch them unaware. Actually, not even so unaware. He, is, he, he comes with an army of two million people. He's going to just cover, like, cover them like the dew covers the ground. And these yogurt eaters will never have a chance. Unfortunately, among those yogurt eaters are 300 guys. The Spartans, right? This is where the Spartans go to glory and all of this stuff. This is in the book of Esther. We, actually, it's not even in the book of Esther. It's between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. You missed that whole part. But the thing is, he's going to stir himself up against the Greeks. Now, the Greeks. Now, the tragic mistake he makes, two big tragic mistakes. One is he goes to Greece. Because the Greeks let him come back with about 5,000 men. So, it does not work out well for Xerxes. The other mistake he makes in going to Greece is he kills a guy. And that guy who has a young son who puts down his yogurt container and picks up a sword. And that's Alexander the Great. So now Alexander is stirring So this is going to really launch the world into a lot of peril. So what does this have to do with the people of Israel? Uh, And then it says, Then a mighty king shall arise, Alexander the Great. He shall rule with great dominion and do as he um, wills. And as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his uh, posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled his kingdom, shall be plucked up, and go to others beside these. Now, <laughs> uh, so the rest of these verses up to verse 19 are these four kingdoms of the Greek Empire. Okay, And what really concerns Israel, and this is why this angel is sharing this with Daniel, is this is going to be a time of real um, um, threat to them. Because at this point, you don't have Israelites in New York City, and you don't have Israelites up in Moscow, and you don't have Israelites scattered all over the world. You take care of these Israelites and wipe them out, and there is no more Israel. The worship of Israel dies. That didn't happen during Hitler. Okay, so what is happening here, what this angel is describing, will be a threat to the entire nation. Wipe out Israel, wipe out their worship, you've wiped out that people. And God is going to protect his people. So you have all of this turmoil that happens. And basically, just to 
um, abbreviated here, you have a part of Greece, one kingdom of Greece up in Syria, that's north of Israel. You have another part of Greece down in Egypt. And in between are the Israelites. Now, imagine, if you will, a wacky cartoon where somebody is standing on the road, and one way they get hit by a truck and flattened, they stand up, and then they get hit the other way, and then they get hit the other And this is exactly what is happening. These fights that are being talked about here are between Syria, the northern kingdom, and another Greek kingdom down in Egypt. And they're fighting with each other. And one of these kings, toward the end, is really trying to gain this massive power by taking the southern kingdom so that he can go back and claim all of Greece. Because if he goes around up into Turkey and then to Macedonia, he'll get the other two kingdoms. This is going to, these fights between the north and the south, is going to be terrible for Israel. They will really, really need God in all this. The thing that I would draw your attention to is this is very detailed literature. So much so that people who actually understand the history of all this, who have studied the history of this, don't think that it was written in Daniel's time. They think that it was written uh, maybe 500 years later, after it all happened, because... It is so precise that people who know the history can tell you exactly the names of those kings, who they were. If you want a little smattering of this, go pick up the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I mean, it'll put you right to sleep. But there is an exactness here. God is doing this on purpose because this will be such a terrible time of history. The instability, the danger... The doubt, everything that's part of that. Now, the application I would make for us in this is simply this. We're living in a very unsure time also. Probably more so than many of us remember, the world has never had a common tragedy or uh, challenge the way it has right now with regard to the COVID-19, but it isn't just that. If it was just COVID-19, I think we would all be okay. But then you see rumblings in other countries, things that absolutely make no sense. China pushing against its borders, uh, trying to take land from India. Uh, You see things happening in the United States. We thought we were a stable country, didn't we? So what is it that you can see in here that would be good for us to know during all these times of stability. And the common thing I would draw your attention to is Daniel. Daniel is a peculiar person. This information is coming to Daniel. Uh, God is speaking to him. He's already sent this angel named Gabriel, and we know he's a big one. He mentions the only other named angel in the Old Testament, Michael, uh, I mean besides Satan. There is an importance to what is happening here, and it's happening to Daniel for a reason. Now, look at chapter 10. Go back really quick. It says, verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat entered or wine entered my mouth so we know the story he fasts 
for three weeks, and an angel is dispatched to him. This is really interesting information, because we didn't know about this angelic conflict going out there. That uh, Until this point, we didn't know that there was a prince of Persia that was an angelic force. We didn't know. There are just amazing things here. But again, I want to focus on Daniel. It says here it's the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, when you read chapter 1, if you're a Bible study person, the thing you pick up is in chapter 1 it says that Daniel reigned until the first, he, was, he was in office until the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Well, wait a minute, it says the third year here. So Daniel went longer. What was the point of the first year of Cyrus? The point was that in Cyrus's first year, he made an edict that sent the people of Israel back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Daniel is all about this guy who God is using to save the children of Israel, to be able to come out of exile, to keep the nation intact. Amazing things are happening here. Daniel grew up during Zedekiah, so he's a Jew, and Zedekiah was the last Jewish king. He was a bad guy. And then he goes to Babylon, and here's the thing. Daniel, without compromising himself, becomes a Babylonian like no other. I mean, he learns the the letter in the arts of the Babylonians. He learns their language. He becomes Nebuchadnezzar's top advisor. How do you fit into government like that? It says that when Darius the Mede takes the kingdom, so you have Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede, Darius being the older man, Cyrus being the younger man, prince of Persia, they rule the Persian Empire together during the lifetime of Darius. He's a highly honored man. In that first year of Darius, he makes Daniel one of his chief presidents. Now, how do you take a Babylonian guy? Actually, Daniel's the last man standing in the Babylonian Empire, the last living ruler of the Babylonian Empire. That's chapter 5, right? He's given the necklace and the purple thing. He's made a ruler. And Darius comes right in. Do you realize that it says, the little bit of trivia here, Darius was 62 years of age when he took the throne? Daniel is over 20 years Darius the senior. There is never a time in Darius's life as a prince, a median prince, where he did not know that Daniel was one of the chief men in Babylonian government. He was Nebuchadnezzar's right hand man. There's so much going on here with Daniel. And what I'm getting to is this. He fit in. He was a Jew. But he totally fit in as a Babylonian. And he totally fit in as a Persian. Wherever he went, he blended in. Not that he was a chameleon, but that he had a different mindset. When you see him praying in chapter 9, this is what Daniel says. We Jews need to survive. We need to raise the flag of Israel. He doesn't say that at all. He says, Lord, do something because your people in your city are called by your name. I would suggest that Daniel was a perfect disciple. 
He wasn't a Jew for the sake of being a Jew. He was a follower of God. And therefore, it wasn't so important that this happened or that happened. He was seeing the plan of God on earth. And he was a part of that. He knew he was a part of it. And so these nationalistic things were not that important to him, he was able to blend in through all of this turmoil. Who are the people who are going to survive here? Are they going to be the the true blue Jews who hold up the flags and uh, fight for God and country, or maybe only for country? They're going to be the people who have transcended their nationality and are following God. Now, you don't need me to tell you this, that the minute that we accept Jesus Christ into our lives, we become part of another nation, right? We become a part of God's kingdom. And what I'm saying here, and making the connection, is that that is what helps us through the turmoil. Is we have our sight on Jesus Christ, and we know what's coming. If we know Jesus is our king, we know that all of this is pertinent to the way we live our lives, because our lives are not about this earth. Our lives, and we'll go even a little bit further, are not about the United States of America. Our lives are not about our ethnicity. Now, some of you can celebrate your ethnicity. I mean, you know, you you know where you come from, from India. I don't know where I come from, you know. I mean, Greek on one side, and then I thought I was German on the other until I one day picked up the... uh, uh, birth certificates of my great-great-grandfather and grandmother and realize they're both from Hungary. Do they have a flag in Hungary? I don't even know. You know, in, in Milwaukee, it was cool to be Greek because everybody was German. But anyway, the thing is, when we belong to Jesus Christ, Paul said there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And I would suggest that in the turmoil that we are going through, We need to pick that up. That is part of following Jesus Christ. We know we can serve in this country. We can celebrate things. I mean, I love the World World Cup because the World Cup is actually a World Cup, unlike the World Series. And everybody gets to celebrate who they are. I was in New York during one of the World Cups, and the entire city was alive. You could go to any store, basically, and find the jersey of your team. And it's cool. I think God made us that way, to celebrate being uh, Filipino and, and the Brazilians in New York. Man, they really celebrated until that one game against Germany, and I was so happy I wasn't there for it, because it was an awful game. But these are things that we can celebrate in a perfect world, but we have to be able to have open hands and let them fall away. Because ultimately, we belong to another kingdom. That kingdom is not here yet. So if you are torn up about what's happening in American government, I mean, pray. We're told to pray, right? But this is not our government, folks. We don't have to go to the wall to defend one view against the other view here. Because, see, what Daniel did was he kept himself under the radar. 
He kept himself working for his people. You could speculate that there were things done in Babylon that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a part in that you never know about. But all of a sudden, later on, it says that there was an entire school of scholarship that rose up in Babylon. How did that happen? They didn't have any banks. The Jews came, they were dirt poor, except for four guys who were hugely rich. But they just probably sat around and watched flat screen TV and sport. No. They were investing back in, I think, into their country. So the point here in all of this malfunction that God is writing out so exactly is that the people who are going to survive this are going to have their eyes on God and his plan. So what is the plan of God? What does that mean for you? How can you keep your heart strong? In all of that. And if you want another good example to check out, it would be the Apostle Paul, where he says, Though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. For the Jewish man that Paul was, that is an incredible statement. Because he gave up his nationality in that sense to belong solely to Jesus Christ and live for his kingdom. I think that keeps us safe. I think it will keep these people safe. So when you get to verse 20 now, we are looking at a man. And this man is called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, the reason this is important is one thing that has really uh, occupied Daniel in seeing the visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8 is this little horn. In chapter 7, the little horn seems to come out of a Roman-ish kind of empire. Nobody quite understands what that looks like. But in chapter 8, that little horn comes out of a Greek-looking empire. And so we'll talk about Antiochus Epiphanes here, because he's coming, he's one of these Greek guys. And seeing the threat that he made against the people of Israel, which is just a weak shadow of what is going to happen during the tribulation. Because during the tribulation, uh, the real Antichrist will do everything he can to exterminate the Jews and anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. So, we get here in verse 20, and it says, um, Then shall rise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. Okay, there shall rise in his place. A king is going to come. And what it is, is there was a guy named, they, they like this name apparently, what name? Antiochus. Antiochus III dies. So he has a son who becomes king. And what this son does is he says this, you know how we're going to live in peace here? We are going to send tribute to Rome. The Roman Empire was on the move. I didn't even know that stuff, right? They were shaking there. I didn't realize until I really spent time with some of this how big they actually were. So what this king does after Antiochus III is he starts sending tribute to Rome. Well, you know what you do with a guy like that? You poison him, right? And that's what they did. This, he winds up, uh, Antiochus IV winds up conniving behind the scheme. This is his superpower, conniving. And he winds up having his brother killed. 
Verse 21, In his place shall rise a contemptible person, to whom majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And so he is going to pick up where his father left off and try to win the south so that they can build a big army and go up north and take care of the other kingdoms, thereby uniting the Greek kingdom. So in just some little things to look at here, uh, in verse 22, it says, Army shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. So he goes into Jerusalem. And again, Jerusalem is this land in between that keeps getting run over. And he goes in and he takes out one of the priests. The problem with Israel has always been this. They don't bow to any particular kingdom. And the thing was, is that in the Persian, the um, Babylonian Empire and in the Persian Empire, they had the right to not have to worship any other god. So as all this is happening, he cannot get, Antiochus Epiphanes can't get any traction in Israel. They will not support him. They will not come running. They will not build the army with him. Uh, he's a ruler, but this people is different because of their beliefs. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but, I mean, this is just an aside, but we're different because of our beliefs too, aren't we? Hey, you know, it would be a great idea to do this. And you go, nah, I don't think we can do that. I, I, I don't think that's honest. That wouldn't be, well, right away you're standing in somebody's way. Just adhering to Jesus Christ and not bowing the knee to something else means that we're going to be in somebody's way. So, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the, the thing that's so interesting here is that these people have had an example. The people that are going to battle against Antiochus Epiphanes have already had an example. See, in all of that other stuff that I tried not to read, there's about 225 years that go by. So, for the people living in Israel, for 225 years, they've got the book of Daniel and they're able to follow it person per person per person. It's like having next week's newspaper today or next month's newspaper today. If it would have had the horse racing section in there, you could have made money. This is kind of like back to the future here. They're actually, seriously, they're seeing how this is developing. They've had 225 years of watching Daniel chapter 11 develop so that when Antiochus Epiphany shows up, they already know what's going to take place. And here's what takes place, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll just abbreviate this. Uh, verse 25, He shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. He goes down to the south and tries to take the south in Egypt, and he can't do it. He comes back with a lot of money, but as he's rumbling through Israel, he's upset again that this land is not obeying him. And so what he does is he goes down. Two years later, he tries to take Egypt again, but this time he really runs into trouble. Because on Cyprus, now see, we, we do this. We say, um, let's see, what verse is this? Verse 30, the ships of Kittim. And so we get the books out. This is what you do with the book. Looks like you're stirring eggs, I know. For people who used to use books, this is what they did. Nowadays, you go like this. 
and you look up the ships of Kittim, and you know what you realize? That these guys already knew, the Maccabeans already knew, this is the priestly family that's going to fight against this guy, they already knew that on Cyprus there was a Roman garrison. So that word Kittim meant something to them. They already knew that Antiochus was going to get headed off at the pass. The Roman government had made a decree he could not fight against Egypt anymore. So what they did was they intercepted Antiochus on the beach and they gave Antiochus these, uh, like a, um, a, he had to sign an agreement. He says, okay, so could I go, could I go and think about these, these uh, requirements you've given me? And the guy says, yeah, you can do that. Take as long as you want. And so what he did was he took his sword and he drew a circle around Antiochus. And he says, you can take as long as you want, but when you leave the circle, you have to give me an answer. I never come up with stuff like that. That was brilliant. Antiochus gets mad because the Romans have stopped him. And he goes back into Israel. And now he sees the Jews. And now he is just totally burned through. And he goes into the temple and sets up a statue of Zeus. He sacrifices a pig in the temple to desecrate the temple. And then he requires them on the 25th of every month to celebrate his birthday by slaughtering another pig. And through the intrigues that happen here, he is hoping to put together, or, or just basically crush the Jews, burn all the books, do whatever he can, and exterminate the Jews. It doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because of the detail you have here. The Maccabeans, a priestly family, Judas Maccabeus called the Hammer, decides that he's going to lead a revolt, and it works. These guys were no... No saints, but with the information they had here, they were able to stand against this threat. The next threat that comes, I don't really even need to get into, is just simply because we're going to be talking about him in another message, the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist. He will be bigger and badder. The thing I would point to here with regard to Antiochus Epiphanes is they had the information. This wasn't the end. It wasn't the end. They already knew it wasn't the end. Because there's some markers here that say basically, verse 36 starts a new thing. And the scholars who have looked at this, looking back, they say, yeah, that all makes sense up until about verse 36. But after verse 36, we don't know what historical things that even attaches to because that's still future. So what is this? what could this possibly mean to us in the situation we're in? And I would just suggest this. These guys, because of God's wisdom and grace, they had the information. They knew what to do in these threats. These threats were not the end. But they knew how to navigate them. And we do too. Uh, the neat thing about the Word of God, depending upon where you're reading it, is you see over and over again Jesus talking to his disciples and equipping them. When he sends out the twelve, when he sends out the seventy, look at those portions of Scripture. Now, Jesus knew it wouldn't be the end, but he gives them wisdom. He says, for example, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
We don't think we're sheep in the midst of wolves. Maybe we didn't yesterday, but maybe we are today. Therefore, be wise as serpents and, and as innocent as doves. Why? Because the world around us is changing. It's changing for us. It's not changing for people who live in Iran. It's been like that for believers in Iran. What we're seeing happening right now is such instability and such finely cutting of words. If a person comes out and they say, I don't agree with this or agree with that, they're in trouble. But see, this is the world we always have lived in with regard to Jesus Christ. We have all the information that the Lord wants us to have so that we can navigate these situations and be salt and light for Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we have to remember where our kingdom is and who our king is and pay attention to these things that he's written for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. I mean, your word is given in so many different ways through uh, the Psalms and through Proverbs and through um, adventurous narrative, but also, Father, um, through teaching where our Lord himself taught his disciples how they should live and how they should be wary. Because there is a price in bearing the name of Jesus Christ. There is a price to um, sharing the gospel. And maybe that is something we have not experienced a lot in this country, but it may be a thing that we are looking forward to. Or maybe not looking forward to, but it's going to happen. But the thing that we look forward to is knowing that you're coming. Is absolutely... 100 uh, percent and nothing can change that and we belong not to this kingdom not to any kingdom here not to any other allegiance we belong to jesus christ and we bear his name we thank you for that in jesus name amen